welcome here today with us at Martinsdale Community Church. If you are here for the first time in a while or your first time ever, you'll find that we're in the middle of a series asking the question, what is the local church? What is a church? What does it mean to be part of a church? And, and what responsibilities, what authority, what role, what task has the Lord entrusted to his church? And so in the first message, we asked simply, what is a church? And how does a local church differ from any other gathering of believers? And then Pastor Gary talked about the church as the bride of Christ and his body. And then we began looking at the issue of how is our culture and how, how is it easy in the church to start to redefine and twist what love means? And then what does love really mean? And, and we learned that love is not merely unconditional affirmation and acceptance, but there are aspects of love that have eyes wide open, so to speak, discernment. In fact, about an hour too late, um, I ran into Dr. Olsgaard, and, and he told me that the, what we were looking for was contingent love. Aspects of God's love, and thus our love, should be contingent. And then, moving on, we asked, how, is the relationship of a believer to a church, is that just being involved, or is, is there a uniting? And we saw that to be part of a local church is to come under the authority of the local church, to, to unite and bind oneself to a local church. This week, we're going to look at two passages that help explain each other um, in, in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. They're passages, the only two passages in the Gospels where Jesus mentions the word church. They're the passages where Jesus gives Peter the, kings, the keys to the kingdom, or does he? And it's, it's, it's the charter we're going to see of the church. It's the foundational charter of the church. And so we're going to take some time to look at this. What, what does it mean, the keys of the kingdom, and who is Christ giving it to, and what does that mean for you and for me? So please open your Bible to Matthew 16. We'll read verses 13 to 19. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." So this is, a, this is an important passage. Whatever's going on here is significant. Jesus is giving. He's authorizing something. There's some authority transfer taking place. And so if we look firstly, the first point I want to make is this, is that Christ authorizes not simply Peter here, but the whole church. He authorizes the entire church. Now, it's true in this passage, Jesus is speaking to Peter. And what's just happened, of course, is Jesus is asking, 
Who, who do people say that I am? And then he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and he gets it right. You are the Christ, which is to say you are the one promised in the scriptures. You are the Lord's Messiah, his anointed one, his servant who will carry the sins of his people. You are the son of God. Peter gets it right. You are the savior and you are God. And in response to that true profession, the core of the gospel, Jesus responds and says to him, Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. Now, that doesn't mean, however, that he's just giving it to Peter. Peter is simply the only person in this passage who's spoken up. Turn over to chapter 18, where very similar language is used, and it becomes clear that as much as Jesus is speaking to Peter here in 16, it gets broadened out to the whole church in 18. In Matthew chapter 18, we're going to go sort of back and forth between these two passages because they help explain each other. Um, Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that you may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Now, this may not jump out to you in your English Bibles, but in the Greek, it's very clear. When Jesus repeats the exact sentence from chapter 16, saying in verse 18, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, he's switching to plurals. You could sort of say it like you were Southern. You know, whatever you all bind, whatever you all loose. It's the exact same formula used in 16, except now it's broadened to all the disciples. Why? Because at this point, all the disciples are making Peter's profession. See, it's not as though Peter was the first person to make the answer, so he gets the special prize. He gets the special keys. But rather, wherever this orthodox profession, you are the Christ, you are the Son of God, unites with the believing people, there this authority is. There the keys, if you will, are present. You see, I'm sure many of you are aware of this, but this passage in Matthew 16 is, is used in the Catholic Church to be the foundation of the papacy. They would see Peter and Peter alone possessing these keys, and then Peter passing it on to his successor. But if you just turn to Matthew 18, it becomes clear that whatever these keys are, whatever this binding and loosing is, is now broadened to, to many and not just to one. So our first point, Christ authorizes the whole church. Whatever's going on here, whatever authority is being given, whatever these keys are, they're ours. If you today are a person who says, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, I would argue you are a possessor. The church is a possessor of this authority. Not just the church leadership, not the elders of the church, the church. But we'll see that more clearly as we move on. So the first point, Christ authorizes the whole church, not just simply Peter. Secondly, the church is authorized to represent heaven on earth. And this is important. It's important to get this right. And this is where my favorite translation, the ESV, does not make the distinction clearly. 
The New American Standard, if you have that, gets it perfectly. The ESV has a footnote. But what's going on is the question is, is heaven reflecting earth or is earth reflecting heaven? Because there's this correlation. We're binding on earth, there's binding in heaven. There's loosing on earth, there's loosing in heaven. Which one came first, the chicken or the egg? Who is responding to who? And it would be wrong to think that what Jesus is saying is the church is going to be doing something on earth and then God up in heaven is going to be watching and saying, oh, well, they're binding. Okay, I better bind. Oh, they're loosing. I better loose. But there's a, there's a verb tense called the perfect verb tense. It exists in English and in Greek and it speaks of a past action that's completed with present effects. And in both Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, what Jesus is saying, and I'll read from the New American Standard here, is whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. On earth, in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. In Matthew 16, 19, and then Matthew 18, 18, it's the exact same thing. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So this, this is a crucial point. Whatever we're doing as a church in binding and in loosing isn't the real thing. The real thing's in heaven. The real thing is done by God. What we're doing is modeling something. What we're doing is imaging something. We'll do it imperfectly. We'll do it um, because we're sinful. We'll make mistakes. But we aren't actually doing it. It, it might be helpful to think of it as we're pointing out where we see binding and loosing occurring. We haven't got to what that is yet, but it's really important to understand that the authority Jesus gives us is not the absolute authority to absolutely bind and loose. Only God has that authority. It takes place in heaven. God does it. But rather, our job is to represent heaven on earth. It's like we are ambassadors of a foreign power, namely the kingdom of God. And here we have this embassy in, in enemy territory. And as ambassadors... We, when we're doing our job properly, can communicate to the people in this foreign country something true about the legislation back in the home country. It's as if you know, we were American ambassadors in you know, a country we're at war with, and, and in that country we can give people updates. Hey, this is what's going on. These are the laws that are passing. This is what's going back on in the home country. We don't make the legislation. If we misspeak, the home country is not obligated to bear with us. But we do have a responsibility to communicate something true, to image something true that otherwise might not be known about what's going back on in the home country. We are to represent heaven on earth, to speak for heaven on earth, so that men on earth could learn something about what's going on in heaven from us. So that, that's really an important point. We are ambassadors, not lawmakers. So let's finally get to this question of what, what are these keys? What does it mean to bind and to loose? Well, just think about it for a moment. What do keys do? Keys lock and unlock. They gain access. They prevent access. So the keys to the kingdom, it would seem, in some sense, give access and close access to God's kingdom. That would seem to make sense. And binding and loosing is the same notion. If something's bound, it's not free to move. If something's loosed, it's free to move. So it's this notion of restricting and opening up. And this becomes clear if you turn over to chapter 18 that the keys and binding and loosing reference marking out the church. Marking out the church. 
See, Jesus gives the keys in principle in 16, but he gives a practical illustration of what using them would look like in 18. What is commonly known as church discipline. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. You see, Jesus takes this formula, binding and loosing, and applies it to the treating of someone as an unbeliever, someone who had a profession of faith, someone who was in the congregation, someone who was in fellowship, and due to consistent and habitual unrepentant sin, one person goes and talks to him privately, and he says, leave me alone, Two or three come, and he says, get out of my face. The whole church now is pleading with him, and he says, I don't want to hear it. Well, they say, we hear the words of your mouth, but we see the deeds of your heart, and your walk is talking louder than your talk is talking. We have to distance ourselves, pray for you, because you're not really looking like a believer. See, that's, that's an aspect of binding and loosing. It's an aspect of the church marking out the people of God. Now, we're a little uneasy with that, and this is in part why we, in our series we spent some time talking about what is the nature of love. Because if love is simply unconditional acceptance, then we aren't, this is not going to be loving. But if love can have an open eye, if love can discern, if love is holy as God is holy, then this can be a very loving thing indeed, and we'll, we'll see that. So it's a marking out. And it's, it's not as though the church is given the authority to say with certainty and with power who are Christians and who are not. That would be a gross error. And, and perhaps there are some who've tried to do that to be the salvation police, and that, that is wrong. But rather, as, as Lehman writes, the point is not whether the church can omnisciently or divinely discern every individual's ultimate state at any given moment. The point that the world should heed the church's promises and warnings because Jesus has given the church authority to speak on his behalf as an ambassador. And he will come and vindicate its words. And, and if you think about it, God has always marked off his people. The Garden of Eden had a perimeter. And, and when the flood came, there's a pretty clear boundary in the ark. And when God started up his people of Israel, he gave them numerous Instructions on ways that they would separate themselves, mark themselves off from their haircuts to the clothes they wore to the food they eat. In fact, the very notion of holy is set apart. When the Bible says God is holy, it means God is other. He is separate. He is not in the same category as everything else. And so it shouldn't surprise us that when he calls a holy people, they begin to get more and more set apart. So it's, it's nothing new, this notion of marking God's people off. Will it be perfect? Of course not. Does it have a real authority? Of course not. What really matters is whether God has bound and loose, not what we say. But we still have this authority. You see, and this is not authority of the leadership of the church. Point A, the whole church has this authority. The whole church In Matthew 18, what's the final step? You don't take them to the elders. You take them to the whole church. And only then, the whole church treats them as an unbeliever. So this is is an authority we all possess. If last week we looked at how we were to submit ourselves to the church, you can think of this week as how are we as the church to exercise the authority of Christ? 
What does he want us to do? This is the whole church having this authority. And consequently, point B, if we have this, the whole church has this responsibility. See, we can neglect this responsibility. We can bury it in the sand. We can say that we want to be loving and we don't want to offend people. Or we can take seriously what our Lord says. He's given us the keys. He's given us this responsibility. Turn to John 20. I'll try to make this really clear that this is indeed what binding and loosing is. See, everyone gets in an argument about what is the rock, and on this rock I'll build my church. And I'm not addressing that. I'm asking the question, who has the keys? And it's clear Jesus is giving this authority, these symbolic keys to the church. Jesus makes a very similar statement in John chapter 20. Again, the same perfect verbs. I'll read the New American Standard again in verse 22 and 23. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. See, that's, that's almost the same formula, same language. And we get really nervous, and we probably should get really nervous with this type of concept. And that's why it's important to remember point two, that it's not that we're saying people are saved and God's up in heaven. Well, if you say so, okay. But rather, we'll see this, we as the church have a responsibility in certain circumstances to sort of mark out when people become believers, wow, that, that person is evidencing to be a believer. Praise God. And, and then when other people begin to stray and harden their hearts, well, that person is really acting like an unbeliever. Not with certainty, not with authority, but, but as ambassadors representing as best we can, imperfectly, what's going on in heaven. See, I think in the church, we've, we've seen the abuse of this where churches think that they have authoritative statements of where people are at. And we so rebel against that, and, and it, it's wrong, that we sort of move to this other side where now the last thing on earth we want to do is speculate in any way about anybody's profession of faith. And, and rather than be reactionary, we should be biblical. Jesus is saying something. He's authorizing something. Whatever this is, is serious. It's big. And it's a heavy responsibility. And we should take it seriously. So let's, let's look at the first aspect of this, number four. The church affirms and confirms the faith of believers. How do we do this? The church, firstly, affirms and confirms the faith of believers. When people, when we go out and we evangelize, when we fulfill the Great Commission, think of Matthew's Great Commission, go into all the world, preaching and baptizing. See, he, Jesus doesn't say that when, when you preach the gospel and people respond with faith, Jesus doesn't say, well, I'll take it from there. It's none of your business. I'll, I'll, I'll take it from there. No, he tells them to baptize them, to bring them in. O open up to Acts chapter 2, and we'll see an example of this. At the beginning of the church at Pentecost, Peter has just preached Christ publicly. And in chapter 2 of Acts, verse 41, we read, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. You see, point A, we do this, we affirm and confirm through baptism and membership. 
You see, when these people professed faith, what did the church do? What did the disciples of Christ do? They didn't say, well, that's between you and the Lord. They recognized that profession. They said, get some water. We've got Christians here. And in baptizing them publicly, they were joining with them. They were recognizing their faith. They were celebrating their faith. And then they added them to their number. Now, when I say membership, I'm not talking about any particular mechanism of membership. Different churches do it different ways. That, that's not what I'm getting at. What I'm saying is there clearly is some reckoning of who the church is. There's a number that gets added to. Later on, in, there'll be a widow's list because they need to figure out who are the widows that we're supposed to provide for. There's some form of marking out the church. Who is the church at Jerusalem? Well, they're baptizing them and they're keeping some form of records of who they are. The church is affirming and confirming their faith. And we do it, point B, for their encouragement and assurance. For their encouragement and assurance. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. And of course, the, the problem besetting the Christians that the book of Hebrews is written to is that they started out really strong. You know, later on in chapter 10, we'll... You see about how they took their possessions were stolen and they rejoiced, how they suffered mistreatment with those who imprisoned and they rejoiced, and yet now they're drifting and they're sort of putting a foot back in the temple system, and the writer is concerned. He's worried about where they're at. And so throughout the book of Hebrews, he will alternate between lifting up Christ and his superiority over all previous priesthoods and covenants and exhorting and warning his readers. He goes back and forth showing those two things. And in chapter 10, verse 23, he writes, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, as these Christians are walking their walk of faith and living their life of faith, it's important that they gather together and, and encourage and affirm each other's faith in each other. That's one of the ways we keep on believing. That's one of the ways that we keep on growing. It's one of the important responsibilities of the church. We need to do this to each other. You see, as we gather together, we have a responsibility to affirm and to encourage faith in each other. And that's a responsibility that I don't have with the Christians up the street. Or the Christians over in Indianola or, or Winterset. That's, that's the responsibility I have with my church. That's the responsibility you have with me and I have with you. And it presupposes some understanding of who we are. We're to encourage each other. We are to spur each other on to love and good deeds. How do we know who we are unless some sort of understanding is present? And this is an important responsibility that we have. It's my job, it's your job, it's everyone's job here who professes to be the Lord's to encourage each other's faith all the more as we see the day approaching. To not drift off into sort of me and the Lord in the corner. To not forsake meeting as is the habit of some, but to get, keep coming together. To keep on encouraging all the more as we see the day approaching. And see, we do this for the sake of the watching world. So we mark out and affirm believers for their good, for their encouragement, and we do it for the sake of the watching world. Turn to Acts 5. The situation is that Ananias and Sapphira have just 
been outed, exposed, judged, because they were playing games in God's church. They were trying to be seen as more spiritual than they were. They wanted the praise of men rather than the praise of God, and, and Peter calls them out, and the Holy Spirit strikes them dead. And we read this amazing statement about how that resulted now with the rest of the community when they heard word of these things. And imagine if you heard that in a church up the street, God killed two people because they were playing games with God. I'm sure that word would spread quickly. And in Acts 5, 13 to 14, we read that none of the rest dared join them. But the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. See, this is a really interesting thing. Simultaneously, the community around this church took them seriously. And you, don't go, you don't go play Christian with those guys. You might get killed. At the same time, they didn't view them as a bunch of judgmental, hypocritical bigots. You see, simultaneously, the church was able to be holy and pure, clearly marked down, and yet, wow, those people are serious and they're loving and they're kind. And in that context, people are getting wanted to the Lord. You see, you sort of get the impression that a clearly marked out people of God who take sin seriously and are living holy lives is a good thing for evangelism. It's a good thing for the world to see. We live in a country where 80% plus of the population claims in some sense to be Christian. And yet we know better, don't we? I sympathize with some of these foreign nations who think of America as a Christian country and they look at our TV programs and they look at the things we, the movies we make and they think if that's what Christianity is about, I don't want any part of it. I, I sympathize with that. And so it's important for the sake of the loss that there's some sort of clear understanding. These are the people of God. Many men may profess faith, but these are the people who, who at least in our community, we recognize as, as believers. Jesus warned that many would come in his name as wolves, as sheep's clothing, and he tells his disciples how to recognize them. You will know them by their fruit. So we, the church affirms and confirms the faith of believers. Think about 2 Corinthians 13, 5. You don't need to turn there, but it's where Paul says, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Test yourselves. And that makes it clear that it is possible for us to be self-deceived about where we stand with the Lord. If I'm told by Paul to examine myself to see if I'm in the faith, it certainly means it's possible for a person to be self-deceived. And so the affirmation of others then becomes an important element in my assurance of salvation. You see, when I become discouraged, when my faith grows weak, if I begin to think, man, I've been reading my Bible like I should, my prayer life has been dwindling, do I even know the Lord? Other believers can come along and can speak to me and encourage me about the grace of God they see in my life. They can give testimony. No, Jeremy, we've seen you grow. We've seen the fruit of the Spirit in your life. You think of Peter going back to Jerusalem after he's visited Cornelius' household, and he gives testimony to the conversion and the salvation of these Gentiles. Yes, I know that in that situation, part of the deal is these are the first Gentile converts, but Peter doesn't say, well, it's really between them and the Lord, and I really couldn't say. No, but he gives confirmation and affirmation. They received the Holy Spirit just as we did from the start. 
They're believers. They should be welcomed in. Paul elsewhere talks about extending the right hand of fellowship in Galatians 2. 2 John talks about receiving people. See, as Christians, if someone says they're a believer, love hopes all things. I, sure, I hope they are, but, but it's my church, it's my fellowship to whom I can give testimony. I could write a reference, if you will, of their faith. And that's an important thing that we can encourage each other. And a fourth point here that I sort of thought of you know, a little too late for the notes is so that the body can be self-aware. That the body can be self-aware. Turn to Hebrews 3. Because we've been given a responsibility. Being given this by the Lord is a responsibility. We've already seen that. And in Hebrews 3, 12 to 14, he instructs his readers, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so, again, each and every one of us has a responsibility to pray for, to encourage, day after day, while it's still called today, each other. And again, this responsibility is not a responsibility you share with all Christians everywhere. You wouldn't be able to do this. You'd just be emailing and phone calling 24-7. And even then, you'd still fail miserably if you thought you had an obligation to encourage every believer everywhere, every day. Now, this is about gatherings that meet together. This is about churches. And the responsibility we have one for each other. As Paul says, we are members of each other. Your faithfulness is my business. My faithfulness is your business. But how can we do this unless we are self-aware? How can we do this unless we know who we are? And last week we saw in Hebrews 13, 17, the responsibility that the elders have. Giving an account for the souls that they're watching over. And, and so from that perspective... You know, if you're going to give an account for people, you want to know who you're giving an account for. And again, being self-aware makes that possible. Okay, so we've seen that part of binding and loosing is affirming and confirming the faith of believers through baptism and <coughs> membership. Let's look at the flip side of this. Number five, the church is to bar and exclude imposters. This, of course, is the aspect of this authority that most churches find um, offensive, unloving, distasteful, hard. Few churches at all even recognize this responsibility, and, and most of those that do really do it without seeing any good in it. Okay, if we have to, if it's clear. Not that we should delight in, in, in barring, but, but hopefully by the time we're finished with this, we'll see some of the loving purpose of it bar and exclude imposters. Open up to 1 Corinthians 5. We're going to look at a real case. If you want to think of a progression, Jesus gives the keys. He gives the charter of this authority in Matthew 16. He starts laying out some specific principles in Matthew 18. And in 1 Corinthians 5, we see a specific example. And again, this confirms the notion that this is an authority the church has because there's no apostles present at Corinth. This is an instruction given to the entire body. No one person has this authority, but a local church gathered has this authority. So there's a safeguard present. We're going to read all of chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, 
and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. See, Paul is <coughs> giving the Corinthians instruction in the right use and operation of binding and loosing. The right use of this authority, first given in principle to Peter's response to Peter's confession then extended to the whole church in Matthew 18 and now with a crystal clear specific example to a independent local church at Corinth. I just want to make some observations. Why do this? Why do this? I think it's pretty clear we, we are to do this. The instruction's undeniable but I'm hoping that we can see some good in this so that we won't drag our feet when we ought rather to be faithfully obedient first for the sake of the individual for the sake of the individual in verse 5 Paul makes it clear one of the reasons this is to be done you are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Paul doesn't hate this guy Paul isn't angry with him he isn't looking down his nose at him he isn't feeling superior to him he, he wants this guy to be saved he wants this guy to receive the crown of life. Now, surely that's a good thing. Surely that's a good desire. That's a loving motive. Proverbs say that he who rebukes a man afterwards will find more favor with him than he who flatters. So you may think it's loving to now overlook things, but after the fact, the really the loving person is the person who loves the other person enough to deal with their sin lovingly. So it's a loving thing. I guarantee you, if this man is saved in the day of the Lord, he will thank those who loved him enough to confront him on his sin. It is a loving thing. It's a good thing. Can it be done judgmentally? Of course it can. Can it be done with a holier-than-thou, looking-down-your-nose sort of attitude? Of course it can. You just, just go read Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter to see a caricature of that approach. And that is wicked and evil and the Pharisees did that and Jesus was angry at that but again we've got to avoid the temptation to swing so far the other way we don't want to be the Pharisees we don't want to be the people from the scarlet letter so we're just not going to do anything because Paul rebukes the Corinthian church for their non-judgmentalists for their accepting stance 
says, rather than being proud of how tolerant you are, you should mourn because you're not loving this guy. Secondly, Paul says it should be done not just for the sake of the individual, but for the purity of the church. For the ch- purity of the church. This concept of leaven, and leaven spreads throughout a lump of bread. Little leaven leavens the whole loaf. And the concept is this, that if, if a person named a brother, if a person in fellowship begins to harden his heart, we're not talking about struggling with sin. We're talking about stiffening your neck, resolving not to repent, saying, I don't care, leave me alone, I'm going to have my sin. And when others in the church see that, they begin to get confused and think, well, I guess that's compatible with Christianity. I guess you can be a Christian and do that. I guess that's okay. And then, I'd like to do that too. And, you know, and it begins to spread. And so we do it for the sake of the individual, but we do it for the sake of the church. And again, this is clearly a loving thing. It's loving, first of all, to God's glory, It's loving for holiness, and it's loving for the individual because the best thing for you, the best thing for me, is that we would become more like Jesus Christ, that we would be holy. The way of the transgressor is hard. You know, I'll often say to someone, if I'm talking to them and they're they're in sin and they don't seem to want to deal with it, I'll say to them, not judgmentally, but seriously, look, either you are a child of God, in which case he will correct you, he will discipline you, He will go after you. He will leave the 99 sheep and go after the one straying sheep. But you will be under the Lord's discipline and that will not be pleasant. Or you are not the Lord's and he'll discipline you in hell. But there is no third option where you get to hold on to your sin and receive the blessing. Either you get disciplined now or later. But the way of the transgressor is hard. And so... I would spare you from that. I would see you avoid discipline. I don't want to see you get corrected like that. I'd rather see you repent now. Turn to Christ now. See, it's a loving thing. It's a loving thing. And and thirdly, we do it for the sake of the church's testimony. For the sake of the church's testimony. Notice before we turn to John in verse 11 that the crucial issue for who you do this with, we're not to judge unbelievers. That's that's oftentimes a mistake the church makes. We want to point fingers at the world. We want to speak out against the evils we see in the world, in our government, in, in the media around us. When really, Peter says, judgment should begin in the household of God. God's going to deal with the unbelievers. God's tasked us to deal with us. The authority, the keys are all about dealing with us, not dealing with them. Whatever authority Jesus gives in Matthew 16 is a, is a self-regulating authority. It's not an authority to point our fingers at the world. It's an authority to deal with ourselves. And so, in verse 11, Peter, Paul says the key issue here, and I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone named a brother, called a brother, And that really becomes the key issue. Now, maybe your translation says so-called, but Greek, it's just anyone called brother. And notice what he hinges it on. This person is recognized as a believer. This person is a member of some church. This person is recognized by others as a believer. He is named brother. He doesn't call himself brother. He is called passive brother. And so when somebody who's been publicly recognized as a believer and a body of believers has at some point in time said, we see a work of God in you. We, 
recognize your faith. We recognize the work of the Holy Spirit in you, and we celebrate that, and we rejoice with that, and we unite with you. When a group of believers does that, now, for the sake of the watching world, when that person begins to stray, when that person begins to act more and more like an unbeliever, so that the world doesn't get confused as well, we need to say we no longer recognize that. The Lord knows where you're at. We're not making a final judgment on your soul. We're just saying we don't really see faith anymore. Go to John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, this is, I think, one of the main points in part of this series. The church cannot help but communicate to the watching world something about that's why we spent two weeks talking about what is love are we accurately communicating God's love and a church like Corinth that tolerates sin a church like Corinth that looks the other way is going to communicate something about God's love it's just going to miscommunicate it you see, if, if we're loving each other as we're supposed to love each other, including the open embrace, anyone who names the name of the Lord, anyone who calls Jesus Lord is welcome here, and we're going to embrace them. It's unconditional, that aspect. But once they join with us, and once we are known and we know them, well, now love demands that we encourage them, and love demands that we admonish them when they begin to harden their heart. And these are the contingent and unconditional aspects of the love of God that we're to live out amongst each other in the church and the world is to see. And we saw in, in Acts 5 that when the church took sin seriously, when, when the Christians were dealing with themselves, the outsiders saw it and were in awe of it and they were getting saved. But conversely, we can communicate to the world that God's just a sweetheart up in heaven. He just sort of, you know, just loves everyone, just accepts everyone come. And by failing to deal with these things, by failing to have a holy love, will communicate an unholy God. A God who's very kind and he's very nice, but it's really hard to fear the judgment of such a God. It's really hard to take your sin seriously with such a God. You see, Jesus has given us this authority. We can't give it back. He has tasked us with a responsibility to mark out his people on earth, to represent on earth heaven. And, and we've got to avoid the danger of being so reactive to abuses of this, of churches that would claim to have authoritative judgments, that we just take hands off, and that's none of our business. We've been given this task. We can put our head in the sand, or we can embrace it. We can neglect it. We can lovingly use it. Will we be perfect? Of course not. Will we make mistakes? Of course we will. Does Jesus want us by faith to try? Yes, he does. And he promises us. This is that verse that gets so often quoted and so often quoted out of context, but he promises us that where two or three are gathered doing this, he's present. He knows that it's a fearful thing. He knows that we're going to be tempted to say, who on earth am I? To try to do something like this? He says, just faithfully try to do it, and as you gather together, Trembling, but by faith trying to do this, I'll be with you. I'll give you wisdom. I'll give you insight. I'll direct you. 
In fact, when you do this faithfully, you'll find that what you're doing on earth has already been done in heaven. See, when somebody professes faith and we say, praise God, you're forgiven, it's not that because we said so. Rather, we're recognizing something that just happened. We, we celebrate their faith and we baptize people. We've done that here and we're celebrating their faith and we're recognizing their faith. This is a good thing. Jesus hasn't just left us each to walk by ourselves, but he's given us a body. He's given us a family to care for us here on earth with his delegated authority. And this is an authority and a responsibility we have. I just pray that God would give us the grace to use it well. Lord God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your grace. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to see this awesome responsibility that we have. That we would take it seriously and that we would lovingly try to exercise it. Lord God, that we would, for the sake of the individual, for the sake of the church, and for the sake of the world, love in this way. Lord God, that you would receive the glory, that we would receive the joy, and that the world would receive salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.